Well, this morning we're continuing our study of Philippians, which has been really timely for our souls and for our church. We've already seen the themes running throughout this text, themes of joy, suffering persecution well, partnership in the gospel, the need for us to be united and to be humble, and the topic of sanctification. We've seen it woven throughout the text, and it's been really instructive. And we're going to finish with chapter 2 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand as our ushers walk down the aisles, and they'd be more than happy to give you a copy to use today or to keep if you don't have your own. Since March, we've been covering a large section of Scripture calling us to live as worthy citizens of heaven. And in what that means is that those who have been transformed by the gospel ought to live in such a way that we show the world how worthy, precious, and gracious Jesus is. We've learned that living this way is accomplished through gospel-centered humility and, or sorry, gospel-centered unity and Christ-like humility. We've gazed at Jesus, who is the ultimate hero and example of this humility. And while the greatest enemy of being like Jesus is our selfishness, we've learned that the greatest ally is an increasing awareness of our sinfulness and an increasing awareness of Christ's glory. So as we come to the conclusion of chapter 2, what we're going to see today is that Paul gives his final encouragement toward living in a manner worthy of the gospel by using Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples for us to imitate. Let's look together at the text. If you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word and follow along as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, as we approach the scriptures, I am sensitive to my sin. I'm sensitive to my frailty and creatureliness. And I am increasingly sensitive to your majesty and your awesomeness that we see in your word. I am not fit to do this 
but I'm thankful that Christ makes us fit, that Christ equips us with his righteousness, and that he makes us worthy to sit under your word, and that he makes us able to hear it and to actually apply it and to be more like him. We are so dependent. I am so dependent, and all of us are so dependent upon you as we go through your word and as we seek to live more like our precious Savior. So we ask for your blessing over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the heart of this passage is a simple truth. The main point is that the call of Christian living is joyful and selfless service for Christ. That's the main point. And that might seem obvious, especially in Christian circles, that we are to be selfless and joyful in serving others, but it's less obvious and more subtle that we usually live joylessly and selfishly. Paul pointed out several ways that the Philippians were wrestling with selfishness. They were afraid of persecution, so they were tempted to focus on self-preservation. They were struggling with division and conflict in the church because of selfish preferences. And they were selfishly grumbling and complaining. We all have a natural tendency to be selfish and think about ourselves first and foremost. For example, like if you're in a traffic jam and your natural knee-jerk reaction is to get (laughs) irritated because you're trying to make your appointment on time, irritated at the people who caused the car accident rather than being concerned about the people who are in a car accident. Parents, when your children disobey, you can get angry and upset because you are obligated to discipline and instruct them per God's word. So you get upset. It's disruptive rather than being concerned about their heart and their spiritual welfare. But maybe I'm the only parent who struggles with that. Maybe the person in your life group who signed up for bringing snacks sends a last-minute text that they are sick. And instead of praying for them, you're burdened and stressed about how you're going to come up with a substitute. First-world problems, right? Paul also pointed out in Philippians chapter 1 how we can even tarnish our worship of God with selfish motives. He spoke of those who were proclaiming the gospel. Hey, that's a good thing. But they were doing it out of selfish ambition in order to hurt him and make themselves look better. Our, church, our worship in church can be subtly tainted by selfishness. After attending church service, on your way home, you, you sit there and ponder and think about whether you enjoyed the service or not. Evaluating the sermon, the pastor, evaluating the music, the atmosphere, the people, instead of evaluating whether your worship was honoring to God. You attend and serve in church, but the reason why is you want to impress others instead of God. Or maybe you attend church because you're trying to earn God's favor. He's obligated to make my life good and to save me because... I went to church regularly. Or maybe you attend church, but you don't serve at all. You just come to consume rather than serving others. See, sometimes we, we love ourselves a little bit too much, like narcissists. Maybe you're familiar with the Greek mythology of Narcissus, who was so handsome that he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. 
He became so fixated on his beauty that he was unable to remove his gaze, and there he sat at the pool until he died. That's called narcissism, and it is the enemy of joy and of living as worthy heavenly citizens. But our passage this morning combats this and reminds us that the true joy comes from selflessness. It comes from keeping Jesus at the center of our lives so that everything we do inside and outside the church is done for him and for other people's benefit. So Paul demonstrates this by showing us two relatable examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. He gently calls our attention to what we're going to see, eight characteristics of a joyful, selfless believer, which are the key to living as a worthy citizen of heaven. So the first characteristic is found in verse 19. The first characteristic is someone who is surrendered. He says this, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul and Timothy had a a real deep longing to be with the Philippians. They had a really special relationship with them because they were both present in, in evangelizing and establishing the church there in Philippi. But Paul, he wasn't able to visit right now. He was still bound in a house arrest in Rome awaiting a trial. So he decides to send Timothy in his place, but not without first submitting his plans to God. The expression he uses, I hope in the Lord, is an expression of complete surrender to God's will in the matter. He's not passively saying like, I wish this will happen, I hope it happens, but seeking to ensure that his desire aligns with God's will. Paul and Timothy were willing to move forward with this plan But at the same time, they were willing to scrap it if it wasn't what God wanted. Likewise, we should be characterized by surrendering all of our plans to what God wants. You can do this in two ways. First, you can ensure that your plans don't contradict the will of God as revealed in his word. So for example, let's say a college student here from Newcastle graduates and starts to apply for jobs. He gets two job offers, one in Morton and one with a higher paying salary in Joliet. Which job should he take? Your first inclination might be like, well, the one with the better salary and benefits, of course. But what if I told you that there are no good, healthy churches in Joliet or within reasonable driving distance? I don't know if that's true, but just for the sake of my illustration, would that change the decision? Well, it should, since we know that God wants us to be a part of a healthy church where we can serve and grow. That would then cause the student to surrender his desire for the higher paying job. And he might be tempted to think he's losing out. But is he really? Is he really losing out? Is that the truth? Is God's will a joy killer or a joy giver? We all know that obedience and spiritual flourishing is better than a higher salary, but in the moment, we could be like, we could be tempted like that student to doubt God's goodness because of selfish motives. 
So we've got to compare our desires to what God's word says. The second thing we can do is pray. But even our prayers have to be surrendered and submissive to God's will. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, God's glory and his will are supreme over and qualify all other prayer requests. Prayer is not about conforming God to our will, but conforming our will to God's. James similarly reminds us that we shouldn't make any plans presumptuously, but to make plans with an attitude of, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There's a lot of desires that we all have, and they can even be good desires. We can even have biblical-informed desires, but joyful selflessness comes by surrendering all of our plans to God's will and His timing. So that's the first characteristic. The next characteristic Timothy displayed was sympathy. Look at verses 20 through 21. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So the reason why Paul was willing and eager to send Timothy is because he was sympathetic. He genuinely cared about the church in Philippi. He was aware of the difficulties they were facing and he wanted to serve them. There's just kind of a sad aspect to this verse. It's, what's sad about it is that Paul was sending his close ally because no one else was sympathetic. There was no able-bodied man in the church of Rome who was sympathetic and selfless enough to take the journey to Philippi to serve. He says they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's a sobering thought about the state of the church in Rome. Timothy was the only one who had the same spirit as Paul because he had been his constant companion for about 10 years, like a Padawan with his Jedi master. Timothy was just like Paul, caring for the Philippians. To send Timothy was as if Paul himself was there. That's how close they were. In the hustle and bustle of life, It can be easy for us to lose our sympathy for others, to not feel genuine concern for people in the church. And we can justify that loss of sympathy. We can assume that, oh, well, there's somebody else caring. There's somebody else who's doing it. Isn't that what we pay pastors for? Isn't that why we have deacons, elders? Isn't that why we have Sunday school teachers? They're, They're doing the caring. Or we can justify and say, well, it's not my gifting. Or I'm not really a people person. I'm an introvert. But Paul does not qualify his command to be selfless earlier in the chapter. All of us are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in order to grow in this area, we have to be willing to put ourselves in positions to hear and learn about others' burdens so that we can sympathize and serve. Being in a life group is a great environment 
to grow in sympathy for others, to grow in relationship and knowledge about what people are going through. The worship folder, church emails, the church website, our prayer list that we print are great places to learn about the needs of the church so that you can focus on others and serve. But there's another reason why Paul is sending Timothy, and that is because he is trustworthy. So not only is he sympathetic, but you can go to the bank that he is going to care Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy's proven worth doesn't just refer to a a track record of good deeds, but his actual character, his Christ-like character. In contrast to the people who sought their own interest, Timothy had demonstrated himself to be trustworthy through his work and through many difficulties that he had endured and suffered. The Philippians knew all about this because they had seen Timothy firsthand minister to them, help plant the church in Philippi, and also suffer for the sake of the gospel. They saw Timothy's moral excellence, his moral fiber, his integrity, and his charity. Paul illustrates how trustworthy Timothy is by describing him as a loyal son, serving with his father in the work of evangelism. This is more than just an expression of relational bonding. For example, my son takes eager interest in what I do and loves to imitate me. Whether it's music, mowing the lawn, and him doing it with his little plastic toy lawnmower, or working with tools, both his plastic ones or the real ones I give him, he wants to do these things too. He follows after my footsteps. And just as a son eagerly follows and imitates his father working, so did Timothy with Paul. He had a pattern, a character of doing this. He was a devoted co-laborer to the point that Paul trusted Timothy to do what he himself would do in a given situation. That's why Paul could leave Timothy to pastor a church in his absence. That's why he could send him to minister to the Philippians. Paul trusted Timothy would be selfless. For us... We have to understand trustworthiness doesn't come overnight. It doesn't come just from a few isolated actions, but over time and through testing of your character. God develops our character in us through trials and suffering and tests us. But in order to develop trustworthiness, you have to be willing to be engaged in service for the Lord. You have to actually serve and be around others who can test and affirm your Christ-likeness. None of us can develop and maintain trustworthiness unless we make ourselves available. And that's the next characteristic. Timothy was available. In verses 23 through 24, Paul wrote, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy was willingly available, waiting in the wings. He had no agenda of his own, or at least not one that wasn't readily disposed of for God. Timothy could have been doing a million other things. He was a talented young man. He had family back in Lystra. He was intelligent, energetic. He certainly had other friends. He he was desirable. He was hireable. But Timothy wasn't governed by his own self-interests. He was governed by the interests of Christ. All of us, we've got millions of things we can do. We've got millions of interests that we can be given to. 
You've got maybe schoolwork that you've got to do and finish up before finals. You've got a job to do maybe on top of that. You've got your career. You've got your kids. And your kids got extracurricular things to do. You've got doctor's appointments. You've got vacations to take and extended family to visit. You've got your personal hobbies in the midst of all that. You've got a lot to do. And in the midst of that, it can be easy to let our priorities become off kilter and find ourselves increasingly unavailable to serve others. But all of us have the same amount of time every day and the same biblical responsibilities to serve. So sometimes we have to reorient our lives so that God's priorities become ours. There's a famous illustration that many of you have probably heard of from a philosophy professor who presented his students with a large tin bucket and three boxes. In the first box were these large rocks, like four inches in diameter. And he poured this box of rocks, large rocks, into the tin bucket. And it filled it all the way to the top. And he asked the students, is the bucket full? And they said, it is. So he took the second box, which is full of smaller pebbles and stones, and he dumped it into the tin pail. And it filled up all the crevices that were there. And he says, is it full? And they said, it is. And then he took the third box, which is full of sand, and he poured it in the bucket. And it filled all the remaining little spaces that were available between the rocks. And it completely filled the bucket. And he says, is it full? And they said, it is. But, he says, if you had put the sand in first, you would not have had room for the rocks and the pebbles. We, too, have to prioritize the things that God wants us to first. In our life, if you compare it to the bucket, we need to put God's priorities in first. And then all the extra things of life can fill the cracks and the voids that are there. But if you prioritize yourself first, there is no room left in the life bucket for God and his priorities. So this is the last characteristic Paul uses of Timothy to describe. Timothy is very relatable to us. He's a sympathetic pastor. But Epaphroditus is what he's going to talk about next. And Epaphroditus is even more relatable because he's just your common average church member. And the first characteristic he points out about Epaphroditus is that he is faithful. Look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. We don't know a lot about Epaphroditus except from what we see in this, in this letter. It's only, he's only mentioned in Philippians and only a couple times. We know he was a Greek based on his name. He was a Greek believer. We also know that he was from the church in Philippi. While under house arrest, Paul needed someone to help provide the basics of life. He needed help paying rent for the house he was kept in. He needed food, clean laundry. He needed help in ministering to the churches in Rome. He needed fellowship. He needed legal help with his case. So the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to help financially and in whatever ways he personally could. The fact that the Philippians sent this man implies that he was faithful, that he was dependable. Why? Because they sent him with a large amount of money over a really long journey for an undetermined amount of time to be faithfully serving. They trusted him. His faithfulness is further described more explicitly by Paul with three terms. He's my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. 
He had grown so close in his relationship with Paul that he considers him a fellow brother, not just spiritually, but relationally. He had a deep affection for him, and they shared a close bond over their ministry work together. But he also calls him a fellow worker. This is really neat. This is really encouraging because even though Paul was a well-known public figure, he didn't have a celebrity ego. Paul treated Epaphroditus with dignity as an equal. He wasn't subordinate to Paul. He wasn't subservient. There is no distinction between leaders and church members when we're all working together for Christ. The last, he calls him a fellow soldier, which simply speaks to his spiritual grit in fighting for the gospel and enduring hardship. Epaphroditus was just your average faithful lay member in church. He was content working behind the scenes. He didn't write any books of the Bible. He didn't serve in a public role. He didn't start a church in an unreached area. He didn't pastor a church like Timothy. He was simply dedicated to his duties, and he carried them out at his own expense. Joyful selflessness is characterized by faithfulness. Faithful person is someone who's always count, uh, you can count on to serve. Someone who draws near to other believers, who is willing to pick up a shovel to work, so to speak, and is willing to endure hardship with others. No matter what type of task you are dedicated to, you do it for Christ and for others. You don't have to be a great missionary. You don't have to be a pastor in order to be faithful or to make a significant gospel impact. Cleaning the church, volunteering on church work days, serving in children's ministry, awanas, rooted, discipling people, taking food to the sick, praying for others, and writing encouraging notes are just a few examples of ways in which we can be faithful and selfless. The Lord uses the faithfulness of the everyday Christian doing everyday things to bring about glory to God and significant gospel impact. So what drives though? What drives somebody to be faithful and dedicated to being selfless? It's love. Love. And that's our next characteristic. Look at verses 25 through 26. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Why? For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. It wasn't essential for Paul to send Timothy right away, but it was very necessary to send Epaphroditus. Why? Because you can tell he was longing and loving his church and missing them. But you can imagine the shock the Philippians would have had when a sudden, all of a sudden Epaphroditus shows back up unannounced, right? There's no email, no phone calls. All of a sudden he just comes back to town. Hey guys, here's a letter from Paul. Well, what are you doing? You're supposed to be in Rome. We sent you with money and you're supposed to be helping him. What? You could be tempted to be angry at him. So lest the church be upset, Paul sets out to explain why he sends him back so soon. Epaphroditus loved the church so much that it was causing him to be concerned for them to the point where it was making him useless to Paul. He was, it, the church knew that Epaphroditus was actually sick at some point on his journey, and they were worried about Epaphroditus. And what's amazing is that even though Epaphroditus was sick, he was more worried about their worry. 
Isn't that, we don't usually think about that. Like when you're struggling with some severe sickness or chronic illness, how, how encouraging it is for that person when you talk to them to never talk about themselves, but just ask you how you're doing. To say, how can I pray for you? Wait, but wait, you're the one who's really sick. Here's Epaphroditus exemplifying that. He was in mental, spiritual anguish for his brothers and sisters. He didn't want their concern to lead to an unnecessary spiritual burden. He didn't want them to make an unnecessary, costly step to help him. Biblical love, by definition, is giving of yourself for the benefit of other people. It always involves some sort of sacrifice. It's not just an emotion that you have no control over. That's why scripture commands us to love one another as Jesus has loved us. So how do you grow in this characteristic of love? Simply by meditating on and reflecting on how Christ has loved you. Those who love little have forgotten about the tremendous, enormous, lavished grace and love that they have seen from Christ. And those who don't love at all have probably never received that love to begin with. By definition, love includes sacrifice, which is our next characteristic. Someone who is loving will also be known as sacrificial. And Epaphroditus demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice even to the point of death. Look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. We don't know the, the nature, the timing of his illness, only that it almost killed him, whatever it was. The illness most likely began while he was traveling to Rome. He would not have been going by himself uh, that would have been a very dangerous trip in that ancient time, but especially more when you're carrying a good chunk of change on you. So he would have had some sort of an entourage, some travel companions, and it's likely that once he became sick, he sent one of his companions back to Philippi to give an update while the rest of them continued on the journey and while his friends helped care for him. But at some point during the trip or some point in Rome, the illness progressed to the point of almost dying. In our day of modern medicine, this doesn't always register to us as significantly as it would of the Philippians. Back then, few people ever came back from death's door. There wasn't just a Walgreens around the corner or an ER room where you could get the antibiotics you needed or the treatment you needed. The life expectancy of this at this time was not high. If you go back just 200 years ago, the life expectancy all over the world averaged in the 30s. Today, it's 72. Child mortality rates, infant mortality rates were very high back then as well, just to show you how much death was common. It was common for parents to lose two or three children just within the first five years of their life. Death was a common occurrence much more common than it is today. And since Epaphroditus was near death, the Philippians were to receive him joyfully as if they were getting somebody back from the dead. God was so merciful to them. He showed mercy not only to Epaphroditus for his sake, but also for Paul as well. I would argue for the Philippians too. 
so that none of them would have extreme sorrow, God showed compassion to those who would be overwhelmed by the grief. Epaphroditus wasn't the only one who sacrificed. The church also sacrificed, though. Epaphroditus' presence was evidence that the Philippians were sacrificial as well. Though they wanted to be there in person, it wasn't prudent nor practical to do so, so they sent Epaphroditus as a proxy, as a representative, an ambassador, to do the work on their behalf. They sacrificed a faithful church member, and they sacrificed their finances, and boy, was it a sacrifice. We learn from other passages in Scripture that the Philippians were dirt poor. They did not have a lot of money, and they were under severe affliction. But yet, we learn in 2 Corinthians that they gave joyfully and generously out of what they did have for Paul. Those who are characterized by sacrifice means that they're willing to take risks. And that's our last characteristic. Willingness to take risks. Someone who is joyful and a selfless Christian is a risk taker by character. Look at the last verses, 28 through 30. Paul says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus risked his life to serve. It was risky to travel on, on a, uh, such a journey to Rome. It was risky to travel with a large quantity of money. You could get robbed. You could get beaten. It was a risk to live in a giant city of Rome that you didn't know. It was a risk to be associated with Paul. If the emperor suddenly decided that Paul was his enemy, he could have him quickly executed along with anybody who associated with him. But Epaphroditus accepted that risk. Obedience to Jesus requires risk. It is not safe to follow Jesus. I promise you that. The Bible promises you that. Jesus himself told us that it is costly and that we have to examine those costs before we decide to follow him. We were confronted with the risk to our health over the past couple years during the COVID pandemic. You know, it's interesting, in the early history of the church, there was a group of Christians who were inspired by Epaphroditus, and they banded together into a group that they called the Parabolone, which sounds like a deli meat. But it's a Greek word that means the gamblers. And what they did is that they ministered to those who were sick, especially with diseases that were easily um, transmitted and led to death, and nobody else wanted to help. It's risky, risky to serve. But sickness is not the only way or place we take risks. Living for Jesus means we're willing to gamble every aspect of our life for the sake of Christ. Our relationships, our property, our health, and our time and energies. It's risky to commit to serving in church. You don't know how it's going to go. You don't know all, always how much it's going to cost you or the commitment level. It's risky to share the gospel with unbelievers. You don't know how they're going to respond. It's risky to live a life of obedience in the midst of an unbelieving world but yet we're called to do it. Have you taken those risks lately? Have you risked yourself to share the gospel with someone recently? Have you risked yourself for the benefit of others? Have you stood up in the midst of a sinful culture at work or at school 
in order to live a life of integrity and righteousness, knowing that people will persecute you for it? Have you risked your time and energies to serve in the church? It's risky. There's even more risks. It's risky to confront a brother or sister in Christ on their sin. It's risky to develop relationships with people because we are sinful and messy. But it's what we're called to do. So why, why should you accept the risk? Why should you be a parabolone? Why should you be a spiritual gambler? Isn't it because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ? That's what Paul says in chapter 3. Compared to knowing Christ, everything else in life is rubbish. Compared to knowing Christ, when you suffer a loss, is it really a loss anymore when you have gained Christ? When we are willing to risk ourselves for someone else's benefit, even to the point of exposing ourselves to danger, we're motivated to do it for something more, more valuable than money, more valuable than possessions, and even life itself. We're doing it out of love for Jesus with the joyful expectation that the reward is far greater than the loss. These eight eight characteristics are, are seen in some level in people who are selfless and joyful Christians. Timothy and Epaphroditus were relatable examples of what it looks like to live this way. They weren't perfect men, though. They were not perfect. Timothy struggled with self-confidence in his youthful age. He was tempted by youthful passions. He had victories, defeats, highs and lows, joys and sorrows just like us. Even the the best of men are men at best. But they exemplified living a joyful and selfless life. They exemplified what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. Paul when he goes through this section of scripture, he's not scolding the Philippians. He's not rebuking them. He's simply pastorally reminding them and encouraging them of how to continue in obedience. We know that because all throughout the letter, he praises them, he encourages them, he thanks them for their selflessness. But at the same time, Paul's aware of the temptations they were facing. He's aware of the proclivity and the tendencies of our heart to be selfish. So he continues to encourage them. Epaphroditus himself was a living, breathing testimony to their selfless love. The same is true here at Newcastle. This church would not exist and continue to have existed for 80 years if it weren't for the selfless, joyful ministry of Christians. It would not continue to function today if it were not for your joyful, selfless Christian service. But like the Philippians, we have to acknowledge that as we become increasingly aware of our sinfulness, we have to continually work at transforming our hearts so that the world will see Jesus through our life. So how do we continue to cultivate joyful, selfless living? If I were to boil down this passage into three practical steps, this is what they'd be. Evaluate your motives. Evaluate your motives. As you grow in awareness of your selfishness, it should cause you to grow increasingly suspicious. A humble person is someone who's suspicious of their motives. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus urges us to examine ourselves, our motives. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
the key to grow in selflessness is to examine your heart regularly while also asking God to reveal those hidden motives in our hearts that are so easy to miss and to be blinded by. Blind spots, by definition, are things we cannot see. That's why we're blind to them. We need God's help and we need our brothers and sisters' help to see those. Second thing is to evaluate your priorities. Look at your calendar and ask yourself, what is the pattern of your life? Do you spend the majority of your time on yourself or Christ? And again, it can be subtle. Like Martha, we can all get busy doing good things, but at the same time, lack joy and miss out on the one thing that is necessary when we are focused on ourselves. Free yourself up where needed. Cast off the extra and take a risk to serve as you use your spiritual gifts for the Lord as he's called you. And the last step would be to esteem one another. I got all, th- all three of them to be, start with an E. I'm very happy. Paul told the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. One sure way to promote and cultivate joy and selflessness in the church is to honor those who are doing it. Hold in high esteem those who labor to lead and teach your life group or your Bible study. Parents and students, thank those who teach your Sunday school class. Bless your Awana and your rooted leaders and mentors. Show gratitude. Show appreciation for the people who help maintain our facilities or who help provide meals during a funeral. Honor those who serve as ushers, door greeters, or the welcome team. And the problem with a list like this is I know I've probably left things off, but the idea is to honor those who are being selfless for Christ. Bible, the scriptures call us to do this. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is one way in which we can help continue to cultivate a a culture of selflessness and Christ exaltation in our church. All of us have different personalities. All of us have different trials we're going through right now. All of us have different spiritual giftings. All of us have different life circumstances we're going through, but we all have the same sinful tendencies. We all have the same Savior. We all have the same commands, and we have the same Spirit working in us. So as we go about our day today and, and, and henceforth, let us continue to cast off our selfishness when we see it and grow in joyful, selfless service for the glory of Christ and the benefit of others. Would you please pray with me? Father, this text is piercing down to our joints and our marrow, our soul and our spirit. Your word exposes our hearts and the crevices and the closets where things are hidden. It lays us bare. You know our thoughts, Lord. You know every intention. You know our motives. So, Lord, I ask that you'd help us to repent where we're needed and that you would help us to then uh, rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ for our selfishness and to abound in the freedom we have in Christ to live a righteous, selfless life for our joy and for your glory and the good of others. We so desperately need your help for we cannot do this in our own strength. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.